The subject we have, belief and baptism essential for salvation, is a fundamental one. Fundamental. It's a non-negotiable part of the scripture and service to Christ. And having said that, uh, much of what we say tonight will not be acceptable to mainstream Christianity. So tonight we're going to let the Bible do the talking and the judgment we leave to you. You judge uh, from what we tell you from the Bible tonight and not particularly to my presentation but the scripture will be copiously quoted tonight and I'm sure you will see the uh, message coming through clear that's essential that we believe the gospel uh, the question is what is the gospel we'll explain that and be baptized and what does baptism what does baptism do what does it mean we hope to answer all those questions I said it was fundamental and it is because here's Jesus commandments to his disciples this is among the last words he spoke on earth before he ascended to heaven and he left them with this instruction he said unto them go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature that doesn't mean dogs and cats and possums and rabbits that means the the creation the people in it he that believes it and is baptized shall be saved but he that believes not shall be condemned nothing difficult about that and the last commission so it's important this is the message I want he took his disciples aside he spent six weeks 40 days after his resurrection teaching them about all these things and this is his last words and uh, talking about his last words of course the angels who were there when he ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives left the disciples with this message this same Jesus which you have seen taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven now friends one of the things about the Bible I was in the truth for many years before I really un understood this that all of the fundamental things in the Bible the story of creation promises to Abraham David Jesus fundamental teachings passage like this are usually dictated in monosyllables that quote in Acts there's only two words with more than one syllable this same Jesus shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go anyone with a problem in the inch of course not it's monosyllabic and you'll find that when you go through the Bible everything which is important and God wants to you to understand it's monosyllabic a child can understand you young people can understand that can't you this same Jesus shall so come no problem but not everybody believes it why not well that's the question we'll attempt to answer this evening now the gospel has two components 
together. And we could go to several passages, but I've chosen Acts 12, verse 13, because the evangelist Philip, who's the subject of that chapter, um, whilst he wasn't among the immediate 12, his work illustrates what Jesus was telling them about going to preach the gospel. Because it's one thing for Jesus to tell them what to do. In the Acts of the Apostles, we actually have a record of what they actually did, what they actually did and said. It's always been a puzzle to me why, why the Christendom at large cannot understand the gospel. Because the book of Acts simply tells you what the disciples of Jesus said and did. How, you, how can you go wrong if you've got a document which tells you what they actually said? So this is what we're going to do tonight. Here's one. Acts chapter 8. But when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. Not infants, men and women. Because they've got to believe and understand the gospel. Now, incorporated in that statement in Acts is the subject of our evening tonight. That's what they did. They went to preach the gospel of the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ. And they were baptised, men and women. By the way, that comment about infants and children, well, we immediately clash with some of the major churches of Christendom who christen babies. They baptise children. They give absolution at the, at the point of death to people. And so we've got a clash here because the Bible says you've got to believe the things concerning the kingdom of God and about Jesus Christ's work. And so I looked up all the church history in preparing this lecture and there's no reference that the matter of baptising infants and children ever appeared before 150 AD and it was only in 250 AD that the custom uh, arose but not in the majority of Christians. So it was a departure from what Jesus taught. Now, what about the things concerning the kingdom of God? Well, the things uh, concerning the kingdom of God are expressed in the promises made to King David, principally, and repeated to Mary, the mother of Jesus, which we'll show you in a moment. So if we look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God gave the promise to King David, the most illustrious of Israel's kings, and here again we have a a promise which is easy to understand. When your days be fulfilled, and you shall sleep with your fathers, in other words, David, when you're dead, after you're dead, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels. Which means, he's got to be a human being, doesn't he? If he's in the genealogy, we've all got a genealogy with parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and Jesus had ancestors. That's why the first verse of the New Testament says the generation, the genealogy of Jesus. Son of David, son of Abraham. So straight away the promise says he'll be a man. He'll come out of the descending uh, genealogy of King David. And I will establish his kingdom. So he's going to be a king as well as David was. He shall build a house for my name. 
A house can be a literal house and Solomon built a literal temple. Jesus will in the future. It's another subject. But it can mean a, a family. We all have houses and it doesn't always mean the building we live in. It's a genealogy. It's a family thing. So this king's going to have a, a family. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, immediately the alarm should go in our head say, well, it can't be just David, because David died. His son Solomon died. They're both dead. But I'll establish this throne forever. Now comes the big surprise. I, God, will be his father, and he shall be my son. Now we know for sure he's talking about Jesus Christ. And David, your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Before thee. Well, how can that be? David died thousands of years before Jesus was born. Now we come to another subject connected with the gospel, resurrection from the dead. David will see this happen. Your kingdom shall be established forever in front of you. You'll see it. And your throne shall be established forever. So that's a tremendous promise, very important, fundamental. But this promise is repeated in the New Testament to the mother of Jesus, Mary. Remember, God said it would proceed from your bodies in, in the line of the genealogy coming from you, David. So Mary is in the line of David, and she is the one chosen to bear this son. And this is the angel's message to Mary, and you will see in here echoes of 2 Samuel 7. If you were listening carefully, you'll see the angel using some of the very terms. So people say sometimes to us, particularly some other religions, oh yeah, but that's the Old Testament. So No, no, the angel repeats the Old Testament to Mary. And again, it's monosyllables. You shall conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. No problems. Easy to understand. And shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. I won't keep this up all night, so don't worry about it. I think I've made my point. The truth of the Bible is in monosyllables or two-syllable words. He shall be great, shall be called the son of the highest, the son of God, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. Throne of his father, David. He'll proceed out of your bowels, David. Here's the fulfilment. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob. Ah, that's Israel. Jacob's one of the patriarchs of Israel. So Jesus will reign over Israel. So Israel's got to be revived. Israel's got to be converted because they don't believe in Jesus Christ. So here's another prophecy in this promise. We've seen Israel last century gathered back into their land. And that's permanent. We've seen Jerusalem, the capital from which David reigned, come back into Jewish hands in 1967. So this promise is living. It's a living promise. It's in the process of being fulfilled. And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. And of course, that was said to David as well. No end to this kingdom. Now Mary asks the obvious question, how shall this be seeing I, I know not a man, I'm not married to Joseph yet. They were spouse, but they weren't married. 
And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Ah, so there's no trinity, is there? Because the Holy Spirit is not a person, it's a power. It's a power coming over Mary to conceive in her womb a child. The power of God is the Holy Spirit and shall overshadow thee, therefore that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. That was told David, I will be his father, he shall be my son. So there's David's promise reiterated by the angel so we know what the Bible is telling us, that this promise is for an everlasting kingdom upon this earth. Now, the Testament, the Old Testament, we haven't got time to go through the, these quotes. We'll just give you two. Daniel 2.44. Some of you may have heard talks on this platform about the image in Daniel 2. King Nebuchadnezzar saw a dream which represented him and all successive empires affecting that part of the world and Europe. We can't go into any more detail than that. But the end of that dream was that a stone hurtled out of a mountain from nowhere, smashed the image on the feet and ground it to powder. And it says that this will be in the latter days. We believe that we're living in the latter days, which are the days immediately preceding the advent of the Lord back into the earth. So this is the last verse of that image. In interpretation which Daniel gave the king and it says in the days of these kings that a latter day situation in the political world shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people no successes to this kingdom no enemies overthrowing an empire but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. This is all over the Bible. The last book of the Bible says that Jesus shall take over the kingdoms of this world and reign forever. So that's part of the David promise there. The kingdom on earth forever. We also could quote Zechariah chapter 14 verse 9. The Lord... God shall be king over all the earth. In that day, there'll be one Lord and his name one. No more arguments and debates about the Trinity, about God, the Son, and uh, the same person. There'll be no arguments. One God and his name one. And Jesus will be his son and, and be king over all the earth. And how this earth groans and labours in need of a righteous king, if you like, a beneficent and benign dictator, because he will be a dictator. Elsewhere in the Bible it says he, he will break them with a rod of iron. So you won't have terrorists, you won't have dictators, you won't find governments like in Myanmar at present who shoot people down in the street. Just think of our world, friends. What, what's, tell me, what's the alternative to this? What's the alternative to this? Mr Biden over there in America is making a good job of ruining America in four weeks. 
The world needs righteous ruler, and they're going to get it in Jesus Christ. So we're going to now spend a little bit of time, perhaps more than a little bit, on the things concerning the name of Jesus Christ. Remember, the Bible said they will go out to preach the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. We said a little bit about the kingdom and the promises made to David reiterated to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now we're going to talk about Jesus himself. Where's he come into it? Why was he named Jesus? Well, Jesus is the equivalent to the name Joshua in the Old Testament. Same, same name. But it means Yah will save. I put Exodus 3 there because that describes Moses meeting an angel. We're told it's an angel in Acts chapter 7 at the burning bush where Moses said, what is your name? And the angel, on behalf of God, gave him the name, which means he who will be. He who will be. Speaking of the purpose of God in the future. So here is Joseph, the, the, the husband of Mary, who at the time was not married to Mary, and Mary had been away for three months with her cousin Elizabeth in the hill country of Judea, where it says she arose in haste. She disappears for three months and she comes back and she's with child. Joseph comes to conclusions about that and has to be reassured by the angel who said, while he thought on these things with consternation, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David. So he's also related to David, but not in the flesh line, the uh, genealogy. Fear not to take unto thee Mary, thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. It should be spirit, as it was in the other quote. Uh, this is middle age. Uh, superstition coming into the translation of the Bible. So she's conceived by the Holy Spirit and she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. So that agrees actually with what the angel already said to Mary some three months before. And so Jesus is sent to save people from their sins. And the rest of our talk is going to be largely about how he did that. Jesus conquered sin and death. So God offers to mankind now forgiveness of sins because the great problem for mankind right from the Garden of Eden was sin, disobedience to God's law. Again, a monosyllabic instruction. Don't touch that tree. In the day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. Kindergarten, monosyllables. We can't mistake them. And this comes upon all men by descent. They're immortal as a consequence of sin, and that is inherited by every person on this earth. But now God offers forgiveness of sins and eternal life when Jesus returns on the condition that we believe the gospel he preached and are baptised into him and obey his commandments in our lives. So we're going to show the truth of that statement. 
because that's not always agreed with some of the mainstream churches because we've got an immortal soul in us which lives on after death. So death is not really death. It's a gateway to paradise and heaven. Well, tell me, why did God make that a punishment upon Adam if it's a gateway to, to, to heaven? It's a punishment. If you take that tree, you shall die. It's a punishment, not a passport to a reward. And that's why we inherit mortality. And Jesus is going to handle that. He has handled that on our behalf. 2 Timothy 1.10, Paul talks about eternal life. And he says, but it is now made manifest, it's made plain by the appearing Oh, that's a three-syllable word, uh, friends. <laughs> we come across one, one hard word, manifest, to, to, to reveal. It is now revealed by the appearing of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Belief in the gospel and baptism is essential for salvation. And Jesus has brought the hope of life immortal through the gospel. So we have to know what the gospel is. We have to read the gospel, particularly the ministry of the Lord, and see what he said and did. But the problem is, sin had to be conquered and condemned in the same nature as we bear. Now, this is a fundamental doctrine of the Bible, and it's the cardinal error of the churches, because they see Jesus as an immaculate, son of God or God the son who gives up his life as a ransom God has to be appeared, appeased because the price has to be paid death Jesus pays the price so we go free therefore they can give a person absolution at the moment of death that's the way the doctrines work in the churches who believe that not, a, not all people believe that by the way I'm not trying to condemn everybody but fundamentally, the mainstream of Christianity believes that. But God says, no, no. No. Someone's got to come, and he can't be just produced by man because that's gone on for 4,000 years before the, the angel came to Mary. Nobody's going to stop this. It's like a river and a waterfall. No, who's going to stop it? By God overshadowing Mary by his Holy Spirit and bringing forth somebody from our race but he's son of God so don't take me literally but he's got a 50% better chance of overcoming sin than we have but the Bible says he's tempted in all points like as we are he's made like unto his brethren he also himself partook of the same nature as Paul's testimony in Hebrews so there's no mistaking it that he was a man like us but he was God's son and Isaiah says that gave him quick understanding in the word of God when he prayed friends he was praying to his father and he was getting answers we don't always get answers he was getting answers but he needed to have that God working with him every day of his life because his commission was you've got to overcome sin Then you've got to go to the cross and die a death reserved for the worst of criminals. Who is the criminal? Not him. It's sin. 
He's got to represent sin and sinners. And it's only to be done this way. And this is what we're going to talk about now. Romans 8, two chapters on from what we read. What the law could not do, why? It was weak. Why was it weak? Through the flesh. Our nature just can't overcome sin all the time. So that was the weakness of the law. No one could keep it perfectly. God, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, that is an account of sin, in order to address the problem of sin, condemned it, condemned sin. Where did he condemn it? In the flesh, the same flesh as the rest of humanity have. It had to be done that way. It had to be done that way. And we're going to explain that a little more fully if you didn't understand that one. First of Peter 2, verse 24, says of Jesus, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the cross, on the tree, you say to yourself, that's strange language. How can he bear our sins on the tree? Well, literally, he can't. But see, he represents us. And here's the representation. That we, being dead to sin, now we've got to represent him. It, it, it sort of reverses. A sinless man dies as a representative of all sinners, dying a death that's deserved by sinners. The worst of sinners. Paul, Paul says to Timothy, I was the worst of sinners. I persecuted Jesus' disciples until his conversion. He saw the cross as something that he deserved. That's why he write in his epistles, I want to be crucified with him. I bear in my body the dying of the Lord Jesus every day. He was smitten by his conscience, and we'll talk about this later. So, reading this again. His own self, Jesus, bear our sins as a representative of us all in his own body, which is the same as ours, on the cross, that we, being dead to sins, should live under righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. This is not substitution. This is not Christ letting us off. This is Christ and his Father obligating us, involving us, affecting our conscience, saying, well, if this, this is what it took for your salvation, don't you think you ought to be moved? Shouldn't you, like the Apostle Paul, feel extremely guilty? Yes. But Paul goes on to say to Timothy, but I found mercy. I was the worst of sinners. No one worse than me. But I found mercy. And that's what God is doing. He's allowing for people to be forgiven on his terms by showing mercy, but on his terms. So baptism is a symbol of an enactment of Christ's death, burial and resurrection. So if you didn't understand those two quotes from Romans and Peter, baptism is an, an, an enactment of Christ's death, burial and resurrection. And as Greg read this tonight, you, you would have picked some of this up. But first, let's talk about the meaning of the word baptism. Baptism... Uh, the Bible's written in English, of course, and was translated from Greek. The Greek verb bapto means to immerse, to dip, 
to plunge into water, or any fluid actually, but not sprinkle. Different words used for that, not sprinkle. And it's illustrated by the fact, if you look up Bible uh, dictionaries, you'll see there's a reference in most of them to, it was used in the ancient world to dye garments. Now, when you dye a garment, and the women in the audience know, it, it, you have to totally submerge it. It's got to be totally submerged. And when it comes out, it's a different colour. You've, you've dyed it. Well, we don't come out a different colour from baptism, but we hopefully come out a different person. We act differently. We're now obligated to Christ. We follow his commandments. We love him. We thank him daily for what he did on our behalf. And so we come out a different person. That's what was read right this, morning, uh, this evening that we uh, walk in newness of life. You remember Greg read it. Newness of life, different approach to life. And it's a sacrificial life because we've got to give up a few things and we can't do ex exactly what we want to do at all times. We sacrifice, he sacrificed, we sacrifice. There's the quote uh, which was read this evening, but let's just analyze it. A typical Paulism this is, we'd say in English, don't you know? Paul does this in Corinthians and Romans a lot. It's as if to say, come on, knock, knock, don't you understand this? You should understand this. It's simple, Paul uses this, don't you know? That so many of us as were baptised into Jesus Christ, were baptised into his death. Don't you know that? You die. You're baptised into a dying man, a dead man. Therefore, we are buried with him. Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph Arimathea for three days, three nights, by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up, he was resurrected from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. So this, that statement cancels out the substitution theory that Christ died on the cross for us and now we're all saved. That does, you see, you listen to the emphasis that Paul makes. Buried with him. Like as. Even so. That's the language of identification. So we can't walk away from the cross saying, oh, that's lovely, you know, we're all saved now. No, no, we're obligated now to go through a symbolic enactment of death, burial and resurrection. That's why, friends, it's got to be burial in water, not sprinkling or christening. It's got to emulate and typify Christ. Now, importantly, the conscience has to be affected. This is not a ritual which we just go through which, without emotion and without a conscience. Remember, I quoted Peter in Timothy, I was the worst of sinners. There was no one worse than me. We have to be pricked in conscience. After Peter's famous speech in Acts chapter 2, this is what they said, the crowd. 5,000 were baptised on that day that listened to him. The historian Josephus tells us that in Jerusalem during those feasts, and this was at the Feast of Pentecost, there would have been a million Jews in the streets of Jerusalem and going through the temple during the uh, the days of these feasts. So it's a big crowd of which 5,000 were baptised. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. 
They were moved. What a terrible thing happened. We crucified the Messiah. We crucified the Son of God. And when they realised that, they were pricked in their heart. Men and brethren, they said, what should we do? And Peter said unto them, repent, change your way of life, and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. So Christ, of course, has made that possible. Now we're going to finish tonight with a, a rapid coverage of two great examples and then answer the question, why was Jesus baptised if he never sinned? So let's do it. Two great examples. The first one we're going to take is a Roman soldier. He appears in the 10th and 11th chapter of uh, Acts. The narrative is in chapter 10 and chapter 11 is Peter explaining to the Jewish council down in Jerusalem, um, or the Jewish uh, uh, congregation, the elders, uh, what happened up in Caesarea where a Gentile, a soldier, a Roman soldier was baptised into Jesus Christ. Now, the, uh, if you like, you can turn up chapter 10 of uh, Acts if you've got your Bible. I'm just going to praise it, but you can check as we go through this uh, to just see we're following this accurately. Now, the Bible makes the point he was a centurion of the Augustus band. And I've always been worried when I was younger, how can a soldier, who goes out into battle and he's hacking people's heads off with swords and battle axes, how, how can he be a follower of Christ? Well, I looked up the, um, the Bible encyclopedia and it says Augustus' band was a band of the Emperor Augustus, selected by Augustus, of veterans who had served in the legions with distinction. Now we know Cornelius was an older man because he had an adult family who were baptised at the same time. So he's not a man who's out there fighting the battles. Augustus appointed these men and honoured them by freedom of taxation, lands, and also uh, positions in the provinces, ceremonial positions. They escorted the governor, for example. That's why he's based in Caesarea, where the Roman governors were. We know that from the Acts of the Apostle. So he was a man who had come to know the Jewish religion. He was a good man, we're told, in the opening verses, who prayed to God with all his house. So his children were old enough to pray with him to God. He gave alms to the people, he was generous, and he prayed to God always. Now he'd walk into the door of any church in Christendom and he would be welcomed as a, as a great disciple. But wait a minute, there's something he lacked. God sent him an angel. That's how much regard God had for this man. He sent an angel to tell him what he needed to do. Verse 5. He needed something. He lacked something. Go and send for Peter, the apostle, who will tell him words whereby he might be saved. This is in Peter's account in the next chapter, chapter 11, verse 14. He was going to hear words whereby he should be saved. There are words we have to understand. There's teaching we have to understand. 
And there was a couple of things that he didn't understand. So he, Peter comes to him and he's got to tell him something. Now, amazingly, he knew the gospel. In chapter 10, verse 36 and 37, Peter says, and this is so surprising, that gospel, Cornelius, beginning in Galilee after the uh, uh, baptism of John, which Jesus preached, you know. So this centurion must have travelled around the country on his duties and listened to Jesus at times. There's no other reason why Peter should say that. I know you know the gospel because uh, you, you've understood it from the time Jesus came from John's baptism in the Galilee ministry. And he's at Caesarea, which is just across from Galilee. So this man knows the gospel. He's got one element of that which we showed you at the start, knowledge of the gospel. So what's he lack? Well, at the end of the chapter, an amazing thing happens. Cornelius and his house start speaking in foreign languages, which was one of the gifts of the Spirit in the first century, only given by the laying of the apostles' hands. But God made an exception here, the only one in the Acts of the Apostles. Cornelius gets it before baptism. And Peter is amazed. What's Peter's words? Well, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptised? The answer is no. So what did Cornelius lack? He wasn't baptised. He knew the gospel. He had half of that slide I put up at the beginning. The things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. But he was not baptised. Now we're going to study another one briefly. Now this man is uh, Ethiopian. So now we're talking about an African man. A black man from Ethiopia. And he was told, Philip was told to join him as he travelled home from Jerusalem in his chariot. Now we can imagine as we read on in chapter 8 that he was a highly distinguished man. He was the treasurer for Candace, king of Ethiopia, high-ranking official. So I imagine he's travelling, we're only told about his chariot, but he would be travelling with an entourage of people guards, members of the court. So Philip's told he's travelling down to Gaza through the desert. Join him in the desert. Now the children in the front would know if he's travelling through a desert there's one thing he's got in the chariot and that's a bottle of water. Right? But we're going to see that that's not enough. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship the God of Israel so he understands that the truth lies in the God of Israel. And he's been up to Jerusalem, probably for one of the feasts. But he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. He's an Ethiopian. But he's diligent. And he's reading a part of the Bible. And he's reading a most important part of the Bible. He's reading Isaiah. He's reading Isaiah's prophecy. Not only is he reading Isaiah's prophecy, he's reading Isaiah 53, which is a prophecy of Jesus' suffering. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shearers is done. The Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was bruised for our transgressions. He's reading all this passage in 
in Isaiah. And he says to Philip, who's the, who's the prophet speaking of, himself or some other man? Because Isaiah goes on to say, is cut off out of the land of the living, and who shall declare his generation? He will not have children. And this man's a eunuch, he can't have children. And this, this eunuch finds in the, I want to know who this man is. I, I have a relationship with him already. Who is he? And of course, Acts says that beginning at the same scripture, Philip preached unto him Jesus. Philip proceeded from that point. He's only got two chapters to go and he reads about, let the eunuch not say I'm a dry tree. Like this man, you can see it all happening. He's, he, who is this man? He turns over the chapters. He had to scroll actually, I didn't have chapters. And he says, your eunuch's going to rejoice. He's going to have a generation. Who is this man? That's cut off out of the land of the living with no family. But of course, Jesus has got a greater family than children with flesh and blood, hasn't he? Millions of believers and followers. People who will emerge from the grave when he comes and receive the reward of eternal life. So their chariot goes on while we don't know how many hours while Philip is up in the chariot talking to him, explaining to him the gospel. So this man knows about the God of Israel. He knows Jerusalem's the place to go. He knows something about the Old Testament. But what's he lack? Well, he knows what he lacks. Because it's the eunuch saying, here is water. They come across an oasis where there's water. Now, as I said, and the children wouldn't even know this, if you're traveling in the desert and you're going from Jerusalem way down to North Africa home, you've got a water bottle in your chariot. Why didn't you just sprinkle him on the head? The eunuch knows his Bible. And this is the Old Testament. And he, he, he says, look, here is an oasis. Here is water. What hinders me to be baptized? And then the Bible says, both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water and he was baptized. So, we've had two characters. One knew all the gospel, but he was not baptized. The other one, he knew a lot about the Bible and he's reading about Jesus' sacrifice in Isaiah 53. Philip opens his eyes to who this saviour is and he says, I want to be baptised. He knows he's got to be baptised. That's amazing. So, in view of our title, belief in the gospel and baptism necessary for salvation, we've got two men who would march into any Christian religion as approved, wonderful examples, but they each lacked something. So, friends, belief in the gospel and baptism is necessary for salvation. Now, I'm going to answer a question for you. Why was Jesus baptised? It might not be a question you wanted to ask tonight, but I want you to consider it. Jesus had no sense. If we open Matthew 3, and we won't because we're getting near the end here, it says that John the Baptist came into the wilderness of Judea preaching the forgiveness of of sins and baptizing people and then Matthew says later in the chapter and they all went down to the water confessing their sins and Jesus came to John to be baptized now we're not told the start of the conversation but if Matthew tells you everyone who went in that water confessed their sins it can only be 
Well, I have no sins to confess. Then Matthew does quote and says, well, I have need to be baptised of you, if that's the case. Then Jesus says, suffer it to be so to fulfil all righteousness. What is the righteousness which Jesus is submitting to? Well, at the start of that Matthew 3 verse 1, he says that John was a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now that's a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 43 to 8, which you can read in your leisure, but I've quoted the essential part. Here is the message of John. You don't read it in the New Testament, you read it in Isaiah 40. Because Isaiah 40 says, in a prophetic tone, the voice said, what shall I cry? And God's reply was, say this, all flesh is grass, and the goodliness thereof as the grass of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. And the record says John looks at Jesus and says, right, I'll baptise you. So Jesus was baptised, not for remission of his sins, which he didn't have. He was baptised because he acknowledged he also was mortal. All flesh is grass, John. I have to go to the cross. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. But my father will bring me out of the grave. And unless I come out of the grave, I'm like the grass of the field. I'm, I'm finished. Now we know that because on the day of Pentecost, Peter quoted this, God did not suffer his Holy One to see corruption, which means had he been left in the grave, he would have shown, suffered corruption like any other member of Adam's race. He had to be raised from the dead. So Jesus is standing in the water, not because of his sins, but John, I also am man, and all flesh will eventually perish except my father, bring me out of the grave. And John accepted that. We, we haven't got the full conversation, but that's why Jesus was baptised, not for forgiveness of his sins. When I was at Sunday school, I gave an answer to the Sunday school teacher, uh, which said, to show us a good example. And my teacher then, the lovely sister, she said, very good, very good. Well, yes, what I said was right, but not all right. It is a good example, but there's the reason he was baptised. Jesus had no need to confess then, but he shared our mortal nature, therefore he assented to God's declaration, found in Isaiah 40. So we hope, friends, you've uh, now understood that it's essential that we understand the gospel, as Jesus told the, the disciples to go out and preach it and that we need to be baptised into that hope which is preached in the gospel. And we wait now the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall raise the dead of those who've died and those who remain until his um, coming will hopefully be judged worthy of eternal life at his appearing.